Our text today is in the book of Acts, chapter 16, um, and starting in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, uh, we were met by a few She predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, uh, said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, she spl- she, her, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs uh, unlawful to, uh, for us Romans to accept a practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been uh, severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and singing hymns to God, and the, other, uh, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer uh, called, for, called for lights, and called for the lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, it's so good to be with you all this morning um, as we continue our study on um, what we're going through, a series called Basically Rescue, um, excuse me, Basically Jesus, and we're, we're getting to continue that this morning. Last week, we took a little uh, bit of a break from, from the series um, because we had just a wonderful and special service. Thank you so much. Okay, there we go. We had such a wonderful and special service last night where we got to celebrate some surprises, um, give, give some gifts, have a baptism, and eat some food together. So I hope that you were all um, here, uh, all of you that were here for for that enjoyed yourselves. Thank you too for praying for um, Mark, Joe, and I who are the pastors of our church if you're new. Um, We had a special time yesterday and the day before praying for the church and just asking God's help to give us vision for the future. So thank you. Thank you all so much. I know that you were praying for us diligently for that. Um, It's such a delight to be able to serve um, each other in this local church. Um, Really we're serving Christ when we serve each other. So uh, what a great treat that is. But um, I, I also wanted to welcome um, Tom and Mary Maitland uh, just formally as they, they sought to join us um, as just a committed part of our church. 
Um, they be, they're now members of our church, and I just want to acknowledge them, and I want to pray for them. Thank you. And all that is, by the way, um, it's, it's nothing tricky or weird or even political, even though it does come with some responsibilities. It's just them saying, we're Christians, and we want to live out the one another's of Scripture um, in this place. Um, they can do it any place, any place where there's two or more are gathered, right? But they're, do, they're doing it in this place. So God calls us to live out the one another's together, like love one another, weep with one another, pray with one All the one another's of the New Testament God calls us to do this together as a local church, and um, they, they've decided to lock arms with us and, do, and live out those one another's here. So I'm just so, so grateful for them, um, as, um, as, as I know that you are. So let's just pray for them really quickly. God, thank you so much, Lord, for Tom and Mary. Thank you, Lord, um, also for Jay and Christina and Mike Asselin, and um, who else am I forgetting? I think, I think I'm forgetting two more. So, But um, Julie, yes, Julie, God, thank you, Lord, just... Just for your people, your people that have put faith in you, um, God. Uh, th- this isn't a secret club. It's um, it's it's your people by grace through faith um, that you've saved. And God, we just we just love that you've called us out of darkness into light. So bless Tom and Mary and the others. I pray God that we would just live our faith well together. Um, help us to challenge each other, to grow together, um, to be patient with each other, um, to be grateful for each other's gifts as we serve each other in, the, in our community with them. God, I pray, Lord, that you bless our, our time now as we hear, hear from your word. God, encourage us with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we're in a sermon series called Basically Jesus. And what this sermon series is about, if you're new, is we're, we're trying to go over what are the core beliefs of the Christian faith. What do we actually believe? What does it mean to be a Christian? There's a lot of other things outside of these conversations that we're having that Christians believe, but these really are the heart of it and um, what it really means to be a Christian. These things direct our lives and our steps. Now, if you've missed some of this, we're probably a little bit more than halfway through it now. It's all online, so you can go to our sermon in our sermon section online. You can listen to them if you'd like to. We even have a section in there called Resources, um, there's only so much I can say about each topic because we're trying to just give you a, like a bird's eye view of each thing. If you want to put you know, flesh on the bones to this, so to speak, you can um, go to that resource section. You'll find some really good books um, that will help you learn more about these topics. Um, also, um, uh, Joe Marin, who's one of our pastors here, who's, who's doing Sunday school today, so you can't, I, I can't point him out to you. But he does, um, he normally has like a, a small group that he meets with to go over like the fundamentals of the faith. And that will build on this further. And he'll be open, opening a small group for that soon if you're interested. So see Joe Marin. Um, again, he's in the, the, the kids' room. So you can just go grab him. I think he's in this one, right? Not the back one, but this one. So, um, so yeah, so this morning we're, ba- we're in part two of, uh, of what we introduced last week about rescue, basically rescue. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the meaning of Christ's death. Why did Jesus die? What was he accomplishing? What was he doing? Um, and I hope that it was as fascinating to you as you opened up Scripture to discover the real meaning of Christ's death. We explained that he died in the place of sinners as a substitute, that it was necessary, and that it was finished, that the death of Christ satisfied the justice of God who, who is righteously angry towards sin. So 
The death of Christ is the death we should die, but he died in our place. It satisfies the righteousness of God because he's holy. That's what, that's what the death of Christ is, and we talked about that at length. But who does this work apply to? And that's a great question. For whom did Christ die? Did he die for everybody? Did he die for some people? Now this is a, this is a great question that um, even, even evangelical Christians, we agree maybe on 90% of it, but we start, we start disagreeing on 10% of it. It's a, it's a long conversation. I'm not going to get in, into the ins and outs of all the, the ways in which we can answer that question and, and even all the questions that comes up in our, come up in our head. Um, because sometimes if you've been around the church long enough, for whom did Christ die, you might be thinking about theological controversy, and I'm not even talking about that. I'm not even addressing that in this conversation, even though I think it's worth having that conversation. But for whom did Christ die? Who does the, the, to whom does the, the work, the substitute, who does Jesus substitute for? Who does he fill in for? We might ask the same question that the jailer asked in our text. Sir, what must I do to be saved? In other words, how does the work of Christ apply to me? How do I take hold of it? What must I do to be saved? And the Bible provides in here, and the fuller answer that we get, it's a more robust answer that we get from other places of the scripture, but it's, it's hinted at in here, the Bible basically provides us an answer that salvation the way that the work of Christ, what he's done for, for the forgiveness of sin, the way it's applied to us, that we receive the forgiveness of sin from the work of Christ, that, that salvation is a free and gracious gift that we do not work for. And it's received by repentant faith that produces a new life. I'll say that again. Salvation is a free and gracious gift that we do not work for, received by repentant faith that produces a new life, okay? So if you noticed in that definition I just gave you, there are three components. Faith, repentance, new life. Faith, repentance, new life. Okay, we're going to talk about those um, at length today. Sometimes the new life, by the way, is called rebirth, regeneration, bo being born again. Hey, you one of those born agains? That's what we get that from. That's the, the phrase that we get that from, okay? In our text, Paul and Silas, they're thrown into jail. Um, basically, if you noticed in the text, they basically cast out a demon from this slave girl that apparently was following them around, crying out over and over again, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It seems like they're agreeing with them, but do you know that sometimes there are certain people you don't want on your side? Right? Have you ever experienced this in life? I know I have. The text says Paul and Silas start getting annoyed by this girl. <laughs> so they cast the demon out of her. Um, her boss loses money because apparently, according to the text, this demon was predicting the future and people were paying her to predict the future for them. So this, this, this man who was sort of her boss... Well, the businessman loses money, so he doesn't like this, right? He's mad. So he cooks up some false accusations, he gets a mob together, and he bullies the authorities to have Paul and Silas arrested and, and thrown in prison. So that's basically the context of this passage. 
Now, while they're in there, they do something that I don't know that I would be doing because they're singing praises to God. Now, I, I imagine, sometimes I imagine, you know, I, I was a prison chaplain for a while, and it's a place that we don't want to go. Um, it's certainly not luxurious. It's certainly an intimidating, intimidating place. But there are certain luxuries that they have. They have water and toilets and running and food and three meals a day. They have chaplains that come and teach Bible studies. They can take classes. It's clean, right? I'm sure that there are, you know, no one wants to be in there just because of those conditions. But, but friend, this was not that kind of prison. This was a dirty, dangerous, and dark type of place. These guys were shackled to the wall with, cha- wall with chains, probably in a painful way. Some people suggest that when you got shackled in prison, your, your extremities were stretched constantly. So you could never relax your arms or your legs or change your position. So Paul and Silas decide that they're going to do something that most of us would not be doing. They're thanking God. They have joy. They're singing out to the Lord that they love. Remarkable. Suddenly, there's an earthquake, right? The, the ground starts to shake. The, the Bible says the ground starts to shake violently. And it also says that everyone's chains fell off. You know that when you get saved, your chains fall off. We're going to get into that more later. But when you see Christ for who he is, that, he's, that you're a sinner and that he saved you, you realize that you've been shackled up the whole time. And then when God shows up, your chains fall off and you're free. So here they are. The, the earthquake happens. Their chains fall off. Now the guard, uh, it's dark now. The guard thinks, just assumes everyone's gone. I mean, because honestly, if you were in a prison like this and your chains fell off and the gate opens, what would you do? I think I probably would be out of there as well. You know, I'm going to dye my hair and I'm going to move to Spain. Okay? I'm not staying in there anymore. So, but they don't do that. They decide to stay. The guard thinks they're gone, though. And he thinks, I can't handle what will be the outcome if, if my superior officers find out that all of the prisoners escaped on my watch. I'll be left with shame and execution. So he decides I'm going to take my own life. But then all of a sudden, Paul cries out. He says, stop. We're all here. Now, somehow, Paul, not only did Paul and Silas not leave, but miracle of miracles, he managed to convince the other prisoners to stay. That wouldn't be me, that's for sure. Friends, when you're just about to give up, when you're at your wit's end, when you're at the end of your proverbial rope, What a great word that kind of shoots out in the night. Stop. We're here. You see, friends, and that's the call to salvation. When you're confused and you're spinning and you don't get it and you don't know why life is happening to you the way it's happening to you and you're you're about to give up, the call to the gospel is stop. Listen. There's life for you. You see, that's what's happening here. So so he cries out. He says, stop. And, and remarkably, the prisoner says, uh, as the guard says, what must I do to be saved? Interesting, isn't that? Qu- 
that question is really remarkable. Well, saved from what? From being executed? Certainly not. The guards were all there. He, he was saved from that, and he knew it. From shame? Nope. He had all the prisoners. He wouldn't get shame publicly with his government or with his people. So why is he saying, what must I do to be saved? Friends, we all might need to be saved from various things throughout our lives. Isn't that true? From illness or poverty or failures, from our enemies. The list can go on and on. And might I suggest to you that for most of our lives, we're trying to do that. We're trying to prove ourselves. We're trying to save ourselves. Maybe sometimes in small ways and other times in big ways. We're trying to be saved. But the guard here, I think, is asking a deeper question because he knew he wouldn't be executed or shamed. It sort of points us back to the demon-possessed girl, what she was saying in the context. These servants are, the, are, are of the Most High God. He's remembering what was being said about them that they knew the way not to be saved from harm or enemies or, de or even death, but saved from separation from God. The greater danger. The greater problem in our life, in your life, and in mine is the source of every other problem in your life. I'm going to say that again because that was deep and you guys all seem to not really care about what I just said, so let me say it again. The greater problem that you have is the source of all the other problems that you think are the greater problem. The greater problem that you have is the source of all the other little ones. So what we need to do is we need to see the problem under the problem. The real issue. And you see, friends, that's what the gospel is all about. We seek deliverance over sickness or conflict, and rightly so, but there's a greater problem. It's the source of all, of all those dysfunctions of life. It's what we truly need to be saved from. The greater problem that's the cause of all the dysfunction of life everywhere else in life is that we are separated from God because of our sin and we are left desperately insecure. We are separated from God because of sin, our sin against Him. All of the miseries and dysfunctions of life live and breed and grow in that separation. So the jailer knows this and he's asking how is it that I can be saved and reconciled to God? What do I need to do? Friends, the Godward side of salvation is the cross. It's what forgives you of your sin. But what do you need to do? What do I need to do? The Bible's answer is faith, repentance, and rebirth. But there's a pre-point that we're going to talk about in one second. There's an implied principle. What do you need to do to be, be saved? It's not nothing. You like that double negative? It's not nothing. Let me explain to you what I mean. There are, there are a few Christians in this world and throughout church history that have suggested that the work of Christ saves everybody automatically. It doesn't matter what you believe about him. It doesn't matter if you hate him or love him. You see that when Christ died, he instantaneously saved everyone for all time. So in other words, everyone goes to heaven. Everyone's sins are forgiven, everyone goes to heaven and is, and is with God, reconciled to God. That's called universalism, okay? Um, they believe that the work of Christ at the cross applies to all people. But friends, if that were the case, when Paul was asked what needs to be done to be saved, he didn't say nothing. Because if he was already saved, 
he wouldn't need to do anything. You follow my logic here? He wouldn't need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You see? Because he was fine. He was safe. He should have just, you don't need to do anything. You're fine. God accepts you. You see, for, but that's not what happened. I kind of, I, I liken this to, like, if, if you found out that you had cancer, right, you go, to, you go to a doctor, he runs a scan, and you have cancer, and he's like, oh, this is very serious. It looks very serious. It's very large, um, it's, and it's very fatal. And you come back in two weeks, and he does the, the scan again, right, just as a precaution, and boom, it's gone. Everything, it's gone. You're cancer-free. He tells you the news, you're cancer-free, and, and, and you as the patient says, well, what do I need to do? To be cancer-free. He's like, no, you don't understand. You don't have to do anything. You're cancer-free. You see, like, th there wouldn't be, like, well, you gotta, you got to do this or that or to take, you know, take this medicine. You see, because you're healed. You see, friends, the, quest the very question, what must I do to be sa saved, implies that he was not saved. You follow me? Now, I know that this is hard and this is sobering news because we want to just sort of imagine that everyone's okay. But the, the hard message of Scripture is that everyone is not okay. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. We are all separate from God and objects of his angry justice for sin. And unless we're saved, when we die, we will be forever separated from him. You see, but God so loved the world that he gives you a way to be saved. But you need to respond. There is something that you need to do. And the first thing that you need to do is believe. It's faith. Okay? The word believe in the Bible is the same word for faith. One is a verb, one is a noun. Faith in Scripture is more like our word trust. Sort of think of it like that. Faith, according to Scripture, is the way in, what, in, when, uh, in which one receives the free gift of reconciliation with God. It's the way that the, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, is applied to me. It's the way I take the medicine, so to speak. So when I trust in Christ, the death of Christ is for me. It actually saves me. Does that make sense? Okay, it's what puts me in his saving love. Trusting that the work of Christ that the work of Christ accomplishes what it claims to. I believe that Jesus' death actually is what needs to happen for me to be forgiven. Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please God. That Christ, in John chapter 3, is the object of our faith. Whoever believes, faiths in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever does not faith, trust, believe in him, is condemned already, because he has not trusted in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the message of John chapter 3. Paul repeats in Romans that the just shall live by faith alone and not by works. So our sin is forgiven. We're made right with God at the cross, not by saving ourselves, not by working for it, not by helping people across the streets 
or even coming to church or saying our prayers. We're, we are saved by leaning on trusting in the work of Christ. And then we're saved, you see? Life comes when we trust, when we lean into the death that Jesus provides, the death and life that Jesus provides. So, and friend, did you know this too? That faith in and of itself is meaningless unless it is attached to the right object. You can, in other words, you can trust in the wrong thing to save you, and it won't save you. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose you tumble off the, the, the uh, down. You start tumbling down a cliff, which is which you know certain to fall a thousand foot depth to the jagged rocks below, right? And so as you're tumbling down, you grab on to a branch, and you're holding on for dear, dear life, right? You're trusting, you're faithing that that branch is strong enough to hold you while you dangle there. So what's actually saving you? The branches, right? But you needed to trust it enough to reach out to it, or else it would have been useless, you see? The degree... Now, you might be dangling there, if you're like me, you might be dangling there with a very little bit of faith, right? Is that, I don't know, is this really, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really far up, and what if this breaks, and, right? Like, so I might be afraid, I might have very, I might have little trust, but I'm holding on, because I'm trusting that this thing's going to hold me. Friends, the degree of your trust or even the consequent fear that you might experience, maybe because your trust is small, doesn't save you. Doesn't save you. The branch does. You wouldn't have grabbed on unless you had a degree of trust to begin with. Isn't that true? The Bible calls that having the faith of a mustard seed. You see, so... The degree of your faith, the emotional response, those things aren't what saves you. The branch does. Christ does. You see, when you grab on, you say, well, I feel like my faith is small. Well, it's, that's good because Scripture says that even the faith of a mustard seed will be like a child's that will get you into the kingdom of heaven. See? What matters is not how great your faith is, but that you have it in the right thing. And that thing, that person, is Jesus Christ. Now suppose you fall over that same cliff and you grab onto this tattered old rope that's ripped and torn. And you are as confident as, as if you were standing a thousand feet on sure ground. Because you believe that rope can hold you up. You're not afraid. You're happy. And then all of a sudden, crick, crack, pop, and down you go. See, it didn't really matter how I felt what mattered was what I was holding on to. Does that make sense? You see, friends, the faith of a mustard seed can sometimes come with a bit of nerves. But what matters is not your nerves, but the cross of Christ. Does that make sense? Friends, Jesus is the object of our faith, and that is what saves. The degree of trust and even the emotional response, whether it be fear or peace, is not what saves you. The object saves you. Faith, however large or small, in Christ, it incorporates you into his saving work. You know that also faith involves the mind, emotions, and will. You say, okay, the, the degree, I get that. But what is it? You know that faith involves the mind, the emotions, 
and will. I want to describe faith as how it affects us. And it affects us in three ways. First, faith is a logical agreement with certain facts about who Christ is and what he's done. Okay? If the just shall live by faith, what am I believing in? Well, faith is a logical agreement with certain facts of Christ's nature, who he is, and what he's done. And here, here are three things that I'm referring to here. The first logical agreement, the thing that the, the, the concept that you're believing in, is that Jesus is Lord and that he is God in the flesh. First John chapter 4. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come, or we'll say it like this, every spirit that believes, that trusts, that faiths that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So you believe in Jesus, but if you believe that Jesus is a Martian or a reincarnation of, this, of a snail, you don't believe in Jesus. You see what I mean? So saying that you believe in Jesus doesn't mean that you actually believe in Jesus. You have to know the content of who Jesus is. And according to Scripture, Jesus is God in the flesh. And, and John said, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's come as God in the flesh, became man, but every, this person is from God. They've believed the, in the actual Jesus and who he really is. But every spirit that does not acknowledge or faith in this Jesus is not from God. In other words, he is not born again. He is not saved. So we need to believe in the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and that he is our God, not a God among many, but the one and only God, our greatest need. What's a God? Okay, a God is what we need most. It's what we need for life, for love, for purpose, for relationship. And when you say it like that, isn't it true that we all have kind of gods in our life? Right? They might not have a name, they might not be a statue like we think of idols in the Old Testament, but we do this. But, but when we come to faith to believe in Jesus, we realize that he's God and I'm not and nothing else is. Right? Jesus is Lord. He's our greatest need, aspiration, and purpose. So we're faithing in that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The second thing is that we agree, we, we understand, we, we, we believe the fact that we are lost and fallen. That, uh, that we, in other words, that we are sinners that need to be saved to, to begin with. That it's not just the really bad people like Hitler and Stalin. Right? That we need to be saved too. That our sin separates us from God. Like it says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, but I came for the sick. And if you don't understand that you're sick, you'll never need Christ to heal you from your sickness. You might say, okay, Christ is Savior and Lord, but he's not mine. I'm fine. I'm a good person. So you're agreeing with me about who Jesus is, but you think you're okay because you're not a bad dude. You see? Friends, it's not enough to just believe that Jesus is Lord. You need to understand that you are a sinner separate from God, and it's your fault and no one else's. And, it's my, and I'm in the same boat as you, right? all of us. We agree that we need to be saved. The third thing that we need to understand and believe is that we agree that we are not rescued by our own efforts, but by the work of Christ. Because you could say, okay, yep, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe that I'm a sinner separate from God. But now, okay, i got to start being good. i got to clean my nose. i got to make this right. 
I got to satisfy God's, ang- God's just anger towards sin through the things that I do. Friends, I will suggest to you that if, if that is what you believe, you remain in your sin. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You're grabbing the rope instead of the branch. You see, Jesus said, believe in me, faith alone. But faith also includes, it's not just the mind, number two. It's, faith is a logical agreement. But number two, faith, faith also includes the heart. It's not just logically acquiescing or accepting certain claims about Jesus. It affects your inner person. It changes you. Our hearts swell when we realize that God didn't save us from poverty or disease, but a life cut off from his affection, that he loves us. You see, so, so, so faith produces an emotional response. The degree um, of that emotional response is different amongst all of us, and it's not the emotional response that means that, our, that, that forgives us for our sin, but faith does that to us. It, it demonstrates that in, in us like that. When we faith in Jesus, that he didn't just get us out of a jam, but he, he provided the way for us to be married to the king, to be adopted as sons, when we deserved nothing but separation from him, our heart swells with gladness. See, faith involves the heart. But number three, faith involves the will. What you believe affects what you do. Okay? What you do doesn't save you, but if you believe something, it will affect what you do. It will change the way that you live your life. If, if I told you that I put bombs in your car, okay, and when you drive home, you know, when you turn the, if you get in your car and you turn the key, boom, end to you, okay? If you believed me, if you really believed me, what you're going to do? You're not going to get in that car. First of all, you're going to call the cops and put your phones down. I didn't do that, okay? <laughs> right? You're, you're not going to get in your car. If you believe me, you're not going to get in your car. If you don't believe me, you're going to get in your car. You see? That kind of harps back to what I was saying before. If you believe me, like, a little, yeah, he's probably lying, but what if he's not? You're still probably not going to get in your car, right? <laughs> um, if you be- my point is, if you believe me, even if you believe me just a little bit, it's going to change the way you make your choices, the decisions that you make. You see, friends, when you come to faith in Christ, this isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. You're changing the way that you see yourself, the way that you see sin, the way that you see God. You're changing, you're believing something new, something different. And if you really believe that, it's going to affect the way that you live your life. Isn't that true? If you believe that sin is a problem, that it's the cause of your misery and separation from God, that God is rightly angry with it, that Jesus is the only means of forgiveness to reconcile you with God, to purify you, to clean you, to make you one with him again, and that, and that the life that you get out of that is better than the life that you came out of. You see, friends, if you really believe all that, we're not just going to be, oh, I'm so glad that I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm just going to go do what I want now. It doesn't work like that. I would suggest to you that you haven't believed the gospel. You've, you've believed maybe some parts of it, but you haven't believed all of it. Perhaps 
There's a logical agreement, but the heart has not been touched. You see? Maybe there's a a logical agreement with some of it, but not all of it. You see, friends, faith is accepting, loving, and following Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, that when you have faith, that's what you have. What do you need to do to be saved? You need to saved, you need to believe, and number two, you need to you need to repent. Now I know that this is kind of like you think of angry Baptists when you hear this this word and hellfire kind of preachers and stuff. A lot of a lot of churches don't even like to use this word anymore because it's associated with a certain kind of like eighties preacher, you know, um, from Michigan or something. Um, but like um, the, the word repentance is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Friends, I want to suggest to you that repentance and faith are sort of saying the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. They're different, but they're similar. You cannot believe the gospel without repenting, and you cannot repent without believing the gospel in a saving way. Okay, Let's talk about this. In some places in the Bible... When we're told what must, when we're asked what what must we do to be saved, in some places it says just believe, like in our text. In other places it just says just repent. In other places it gives you both. So which is it? Well, friends, like I said before, you can't. A lot of times they're used interchangeably because one presumes the other. You can't have one without the other. John the Baptist preached, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." Jesus told his disciples to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Luke chapter 24. Acts chapter 20 says both. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in Jesus Christ. So all over scripture, we're we're given both words as a means of having our sins forgiven and being reconciled to God. Paul describes this as happening to a certain group of people in Thessalonians. He says about them, They themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, that conversion process, he's describing it. It's a turning away from something and clinging to something else. You see? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for repent means to turn. In the New Testament, it means to change your attitude to change your mind. Really, both words in the Old Testament and New Testament are describing the same thing. You're turning from something that you lived in formerly and to something else. There's a turning. Or you could say it like this, you're changing your mind. You believed this and now you believe that. You see, when 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 we were talking about faith, when you say, I believe in Jesus, the presumption is that you didn't before. You believed in something else. You see? But when you say just believe, it's not really um, talking too much about what you turned away from. Repentance makes that clear, that you're turning away from something. You're not adding Jesus to your old system. It's a completely new one, and you're recognizing that the old system is wrong. It's a lie. And you're turning from it to Christ. You see? Like faith, repentance involves the mind, the emotions, and will. In that text I just read to you, they were turning from false gods and trusts. The mind is is agreeing that it is indeed a false trust. 
that I was okay and I'm not okay. I thought I, I was confident in myself. I was confident in all these things, and I'm, and I'm realizing now that I was wrong. You see, my, mi my mind is changing. See, the mind ident identifies the false God and the guilt of sin. The heart takes responsibility for the sin and grieves the consequence. You see, the Bible sort of couples um, repentance with grief. When you realize what you've done to offend a holy God, you're not, how dare you be holy and I can't do whatever I want, right? That's not the attitude of the heart. You see, the heart's changing. The cha it's a change of attitude. It is, why did I do these things to my good God? The heart is changing. It's repenting. You see? And it, finally, it affects the will. The will turns from those things, formerly adored and trusted and served. And it now adores and trusts and serves Jesus Christ. You see how faith and repentance are sort of describing the same process? I hope that you do. True repentance is not just feeling remorse, though we're certain to feel this. And you're not just changing your mind about your sin. You're also changing your mind about your Savior, about who he is, his love for you, and what he's done for you. So, this, so repentance doesn't leave us in despair because we are turning from what was hopeless death to life in Christ that he gives us freely by grace. Repentance leads us to, to joy, you see? To be saved is to turn from a false hope that led us to sin in the first place, and it's a turning to the only God believing that he is our Lord and our Savior. Okay? That's repentance and faith. How does all this happen? The Bible describes this process as being born again, the rebirth. The Bible makes clear that anyone who has ever put repentant faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is born again. Okay? Let me explain to you this. It sounds very kind of pie in the sky and esoteric, and what does this even mean to be born again? It's it can be kind of confusing. So let's first read John chapter 3. Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, no one enters the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. For us to be saved, we must be born again. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us new birth in 1 Peter chapter 1. You see, friends, if we are to be saved, we must be born again. Very truly, I tell you, no one enters the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It answers almost what we were saying at the beginning of our sermon, that it's not nothing. When we're saved, something happens. It's identifiable. And the something that happens that's identifiable is what gives you the assurance that you actually are saved. You see? So the Bible teaches that to have faith in Jesus, to be in heaven, or to have eternal life, is to be born again. It's a now new life and a later new life. In other words, we get this new life now in part, and we get it later when he comes 
when we resurrect from the dead and we're made to live with him forever. You see, we're born again. We're new people. The Bible likens this in the Gospels to the blind receiving sight. That's what it means, being born again. I once was blind, but now I see. I was in the darkness, but now I'm in the light. You're not the same. You see now. You see, friends, how do you know that you see now? Faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's how you know you see. When you understand, when your heart swells and it changes your life, you see. You get it. And friends, I would suggest to you that if, if, you're, if, you, when you, if you don't agree with the gospel, with, with the terms of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, your condition, if you don't agree with that, if your heart doesn't swell over, if it doesn't mean anything to you in your heart, if it hasn't changed the way you live your life, might I suggest to you that perhaps you are not born again. And what do you do? Well, you need to see, believe, repent and believe the gospel. Seek him and you will find him. That's the promise. So it's likened to the blind receiving the sight, the deaf hearing. In regeneration, God makes dead people alive. That's something only that he can do. And in Titus 2.5, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, sin has marred us and our nature so badly. We're so corrupt, so broken, so insecure and lost that we can't even see the kingdom without first being born again, John chapter 3. So God takes the initiative in rebirth, but man needs to respond in faith. God takes the initiative. Without his moving on you, you never would believe, but you still need to believe. You still need to respond in faith. John chapter 1, to all that believe in him, he gave the right to be children of God, born not of human will, but God's will. Now, if I can just simplify this, I know this topic introduces other questions, um, no one is saved without being made new, be, being given new spiritual eyes. So you've got to ask the question, do I have those eyes? Do I believe? Do, is this really my new heart, my new attitude? And these new spiritual eyes come by the supernatural power and will of God, not by our own. It's why we can see and believe in the first place. I want you to consider a drowning man with me, all right? This is fun. Suppose you're drowning, right? You're out in deep water, and uh-oh, I'm, how did I get here? I can't even swim. So I'm kicking, and I'm flailing, and I'm punching everything around me, and I'm sinking, right? And then all of a sudden, a lifeguard shows up. Oh, good news, right? You think that would be good news, but sometimes, you know, people are so hysterical that they, they don't receive the rescue. They're still trying to save themselves. So this lifeguard gets close. He's getting elbowed and clawed and pulled at. Right now, he starts to bring both of you down. Have you ever seen this? You know what they teach lifeguards to do in a situation like that? Boom! You pop them. You, you, you knock him out so that you don't both die, right? That's what you do. That's what the, life, the lifeguard does. So, so here's this. You're resisting. You're clawing. You're grasping the, the, the lifeguard. So this lifeguard, he pops you like as hard as he can. And suddenly, what do you do? Now you're disoriented and you're still. Like everything just sort of stops. And you get clarity. And you're like, oh, he's here to save me. 
I need to be saved. He's here. He can do it. So you stop fighting. You know I can't swim. How many people in here can't swim? I don't mean literally. But, you know, you're in life, and you've tried swimming life, and it just doesn't work. And you're lost and broken, and nothing satisfies your soul. Friends, it's because you're trying to keep yourself afloat when Jesus is sitting there, and you just need to rest on him, believe in him, trust that he made you and loves you. Don't get hung up with all the do's and don'ts of Scripture. He'll help you sort those things out. Just recognize that you're lost, that you're in trouble, and that you need Christ. He made you, and he's here to rescue you. Lean on him. So you get popped, you start resisting, and you lean in to the guard, and he saves your life. That punch, (laughs) it put you in the light, didn't it? It helped you. You couldn't see before. But now you do. Now you get it. That pop, excuse my maybe indiscretion or what some people might think is maybe a a, a little bit, um, I don't know what the word is. But that pop is like regeneration. It's like God suddenly wakes us up when we just could not be woken up before. And because of it, we're able to trust him. We stop resisting him and we lean in on him. The Bible teaches that that we are not able to see our real problem and we're not able to see the solution of Christ without that divine spirit pop. It's got to happen or we're just going to be flailing in the sea. Okay? Romans 3 says that there are none that seek him, not even one. Ephesians 2 makes clear that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus said that no one comes to me unless my Father draws him. Pop. John chapter 16, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. Pop of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right? So without that divine slug, the new birth, we would ne- the, the, the new birth, regeneration, we would never sense our own guilt or turn from it in Christ as our Savior. Yet the responsibility to repent and believe still rests with us. John 5, chapter 5 claims, you refuse to come that you might have life. You see, the problem wasn't that they couldn't come, but the problem was that they could come but, but wouldn't. See, to be born again, the born again person, is the person that's awake, that sees. And how do we know we're awake? Because repentance and faith begins to affect the mind, the emotions, and the will. Does that make sense? It changes you. It puts you on a new course. So friends, could I invite you to consider something? What are you leaning on? Who are you leaning into? You see, are you flailing in the water? Are you grabbing onto the wrong rope? How's that working? I want to suggest to you that if there is a God and that he spoke to us and that he made you, the reason why life is so harrowing and confusing is because we're grabbing the wrong rope. That rope didn't make you. That rope doesn't love you. You see, God does. Jesus does. Come to him. He's better. He's better. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,